You are listening to United and Resilient, a podcast designed to help heal and support the El Paso community. I am your host, Oscar Arriaga, Outreach Coordinator for the El Paso United Family Resiliency Center, a program of United Way of El Paso County. We are dedicated to serve those who were impacted directly or indirectly by August 3rd. Join us on the journey to long-term recovery as we have honest conversations with local leaders, mental health specialists, and fellow Pasoans who share their stories and expertise. We feature topics that influence and impact the vitality and resilience of our community. We are El Paso United, and together we heal. Juntos, sanamos. Dear listener, before we begin, a note of warning. The topic we are about to explore contains a mention of the mass casualty events and a description of the events that unfolded thereafter. This episode may not be suitable for everyone. Please note any views or opinions shared in this program are personal and belong solely to the individual and do not represent the United Way of El Paso County or the El Paso United Family Resiliency Center. Any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Through this conversation, we connect with Dr. Richard Pineda from the University of Texas at El Paso. He is an associate professor in the Department of Communications and currently serves as director of the Sam Donaldson Center for Communication Studies. He will explain how the public can decipher media misinformation and evaluate the reliability of information. He'll also talk about holding boundaries when it comes to intaking information, especially through social media. Welcome, Dr. Pineda. Before we begin learning how media and social media impacts our mental health and shape our ideas and understanding, please tell us about yourself, your research and teaching interests at the University of Texas at El Paso. Share with us your academic achievements, such as your research being published in several communication journals, also, your journey to becoming a professor of higher education. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's great to be here, Oscar. Um, I have been at UTEP now for uh, about 18 years. Uh, I have returned to El Paso, so I grew up about six blocks from the university uh, in Sunset Heights. I grew up with my grandparents and my, my mom. And the interesting thing about UTEP was when I was relatively young, uh, my, my grandmother would take care of me during the day. Uh, and when I wasn't in school, it would kind of let me roam around. And so what happened was one time I walked onto campus. Uh, the library that most people know now had just opened within a year or two, and I, I discovered it. And I was already kind of a nerdy kid. I mean, I loved libraries. I was, you know, I was really into um, uh, science projects, things like that. And so I found the UTEP library and it was the most amazing. Like you hear those, you know, like you hear the trumpets or the, that kind of noise of discovery. And that's exactly what happened. And I was like, this is the most amazing place. And so from a very early age, UTEP played a big part of my life. And the fact that we were so close and, you know, I would always go to UTEP games with my grandfather. It's always been a part of the, the fabric of my life. I don't, ever think that I thought that I would be a faculty member here. Um, And what ended up happening for me was I was living on the, uh, here in Sunset Heights and we moved right before high school. So I ended up graduating from Eastwood instead of El Paso High where I thought I was gonna go. 
And uh, I left town. I mean, like a lot of people, I, I went to college. I, I went to school at Baylor University. And, and I, I debated in high school. I debated in college. And that's actually how I paid for graduate school was, was as a debate coach. So it paid for like everything all the way through my PhD. But what was interesting was I got to UTEP um, without a plan and came into the Department of Communication and had a couple of really powerful professors who both got me really excited in school, which I wasn't as an undergraduate. I, I really, it was a terrible student. I mean, I, I joke with my students that, that if you had told me then I would be a professor, or especially if you told my professors that I would be a professor, I think everyone would have just kind of laughed. Um, but for me, the whole process kind of just took off when I was in graduate school and I studied to, I was always interested in politics. I didn't want to study political science, but what I found out was that I could study everything that I wanted to in politics through communication. So I ended up doing a, a PhD at a place called Wayne State, which is in downtown Detroit, and it was a great experience. I mean, it was just a great education, and I went from there to California uh, for, for a couple of years. I thought that's where I would kind of spend my time. And then I came back to El Paso on a job interview here at UTEP, largely out of professional courtesy. Somebody said, hey, this would be a great position for somebody that's interested in studying political communication and Latino Latinos in the United States. And and honestly, Oscar, I, I made the choice to do the interview as a professional courtesy. Like, well, I'm, I'm you know, I just bought a house in California. I'm not going to leave, but it'll be, you know, it'll be interesting. And I came back. Uh, I had a great interview. I got a chance to, to meet with uh, uh, the late uh, Diana Natalicio, and I just thought, this is where I want to be. Like, I, I, everything that I thought about El Paso had changed, and I wanted to be here. And, and I made that choice largely uh, because I thought I could make a difference here. That's a great journey of coming back to El Paso and being the professor that you are at UTEP. I've also known that you have written and published several communication journals. Um, the work that I do has has changed a little bit. I mean, as I said, I fundamentally am interested in how communication and symbols, especially language, how they matter. Um, and, and what I've decided to kind of focus on is a, a couple of things that intersect with uh, broader questions of media. So I've been interested in how politicians uh, communicate. That's, that's a big part of the work that I've done. Um, I've also looked at controversies, and I've been interested in writing about immigration. When we talk about language, we can determine that language itself can be violent, uh, but we haven't spent a lot of time thinking about whether or not violence itself is symbolic or rhetorical. And so for me, that was really interesting because, I mean, I was you know, here that morning uh, in El Paso. Uh, I watched for hours uh, in kind of fear and sadness and in dread, everything that happened. I started doing media interviews that night and through the through the following week. Uh, and so it's interesting because it's kind of come to head. And I didn't expect, I mean, when I started writing about, about immigration, I mean, obviously where the university sits physically, you know, you get a very different perspective on looking to, to Mexico. Uh, but I never thought of my work as being personal in that way. I mean, I thought I've got a perspective on it and that's interesting. But this piece is the first thing I've written in a long time that um, was hard to write because it was it was expressing sort of my own uh, discomfort with, with everything that happened uh, that Saturday and also with the sense that we're still trying to figure that out. Um, and, and I think, you know, to the point of, of what I suspect we'll, we'll get more into today, uh, it is the question of how we see those things. Those are great topics that you have written about, and we will get into some of those. But first, again, I want to say thank you for returning to El Paso and bringing back your experience and knowledge and sharing it with our future generations. I always think that enriches and benefits the community. Let's start with the basics, Dr. Pineda. What role does 
the media play in the community? How does it help? And at the same time, how can it cause problems? Media is a public good. Uh, up until you know, really the last couple of decades, the, the media was seen as something that, that everybody should have open access to. Um, and the government has gone through a, a variety of different legislative and legal uh, challenges to try to ensure that, right? That they would say, you know, the only way that, that airspace matters is if we can regulate it and allow lots of people to have access to it. And so, you know, there's there's a generation that I'm sure will listen to this podcast that remembers when all you needed was an antenna, right? You didn't need a digital receiver. You didn't need a, a cable line. Uh, you literally could turn on your television, mess with the antenna, and you could get, you know, a whole bunch of channels on on uh, the big band and then everything beyond 14 you could, you could get if you had a different kind of antenna. So the government, as a, as a good kind of reminder, has, has always made sure that media is a public good because they recognize that once you start to transmit at a mass level, you have the, the power of being able to spread information. And from a very neutral perspective, that's ultimately it, right? It's it's one person or a group of people that are then broadcasting to a wide range of, of people. And I tell my students that this is an important perspective because a lot of times, you know, they're growing up in a generation where uh, you have satellite television, so you've got, you know, a thousand channels and there's, there's you know, a niche channel for almost everything but but that's a radical departure from you know when I grew up in the in the 80s where you didn't have you know you had six channels and and as I tell people you know if you were uh, in air quotes rich you had cable and that gave you like 20 more channels but but it wasn't the world that we live in now so media is important because it gets ideas across uh, it allows us to connect it does for better or worse create community in the sense that a lot of us are drawn to certain kinds of things and the best example of that I mean not even to make it complicated is that you will find people that like the same TV show that you do. And by the very virtue of the fact that they like the same TV show, you've created a community, right? Because you can talk about that show, you can talk about what's going on, you can talk about the things that are happening. That the both the challenge and the opportunity is that almost everything then creates community. So if I want to talk about politics, I've created a community that speaks to that. If I want to talk about social issues, I've created a community that speaks to that. And by virtue of creating a space that says, this is the thing we like, you almost automatically create a mirror space of people that say, we don't like that. So media is really important in that regard. Uh, we've tried to regulate it so that people have open access to it. But the other challenge with media is that it has shifted in the last couple of decades. Um, the, the corporate side of media has become much more dominant. And so now, um, it, it's not as if the media companies uh, that most people are familiar with, ABC, CBS, NBC, it's not as if those were nonprofit entities. But now what's happened is that media has essentially become a commodity. So the, the literal channels that, that um, are being used to connect to people, the media ecology that's associated with that, all of that is now connected largely to corporate interest, and that's where things start to get really complicated. It's hard not to see news media as a big business. The complete coverage of stories can be at risk with the rise of media as a business. We've seen negative perceptions of our community shared through media, some that we know are sometimes exaggerated. How can people validate information provided by the media? So one of the things that I think is super powerful about media in a contemporary age is that you can access so much. Um, I tell my students that if you, if you want news, you could go to a website like the BBC's, the British Broadcasting Corporation, and you could listen to their news broadcast in a dozen languages. 
And that's amazing, right? I can sit in El Paso, Texas, and if I wanted to, and if I had the capacity, I could listen to the BBC World Service report in Farsi, or I could listen to them report in Russian, if I spoke those languages. That power is unbelievable because previous to this sort of internet digital generation, it took a lot of effort to get to that point. So in one sense, it's amazing, right? It's this this world of complexity and lots of information and, and sort of an overload of information. So that's the first problem. There's a lot. So it's hard to, to get through all of that. And the second thing to your point, Oscar, is that um, people take information in really unusual ways and i think this is one of the challenges we're experiencing right now especially with social media um, which is that it's less about um, direct and replicable information and more the idea that somebody says well here's a thing that i'm interested in and because that person might have followers then you have a bunch of people that say oh i'm interested in that too and and now you've artificially created an environment where a lot of people are like, oh, well, that person says that, you know, uh, the sky is purple. And it doesn't matter if it's not purple. You've got enough people that are saying it that, that have these kinds of connections. And so I think the issue, my my take on social media has always been that there's two problems. The first is that it's very transitory. Um, that is that information is constantly moving and people have a very sort of transitory engagement with it. Like, I'm really interested in this thing right at this moment, uh, but in 48 hours or in, in a week, I'm going to be on to the next thing, right? So so we're constantly, our attention span is is really shifted. The, the second thing is that it's, it's a really shallow space for engagement. In other words, I use social media as an example. Uh, somebody will say something outrageous and you will have people that will, you know, give it a thumbs up or give it a thumbs down. Uh, they, they will engage in the most shallow level of response. They probably won't engage in the material. They'll probably engage in calling that person, you know, saying, I don't like you or I don't, I don't like what you're saying. But there's never a, an honest debate or discourse. And that's the part that's really hard because what happens then is misinformation or uh, information that isn't accurate will get replicated. And the more we think that there's truth to it, and sometimes it takes a while for us to like decode what's going on. And the reason that that's even more complicated is what we what we know over the last ten plus years is that that information, especially uh, information in in the digital space, is actually being weaponized, right? And that's the part where we've been talking about from an international politics perspective that now there are third parties who are actively putting stories out there that are incorrect because they want to change the the tone of something. And that's that's super problematic. So it's not even sometimes that somebody says, well, here's a post that I think is, is real information. There are people that are actively manipulating that. So you've got this intersection of two very, very negative forces when it comes to media, when it comes to information. Great points. Adding the content circulating on social media, and it creates a storm of misinformation, overconsumption, and more. People share and connect with the news that is going on out there. And how has this information sharing and consumption changed over time? And how has it affected individuals in regards to mental health? Well, the, the first thing that's important is um, that transitory nature, I think, is shifting people's expectations of social engagement. So we're not looking to build community in a traditional fashion. We're looking for people that are saying the same things as us. And one of my favorite experiments, and this kind of emphasizes the point, um, I always teach a large lecture, lecture class that has about 200 students. And I say, okay, how many of you have more than 500 friends uh, on Facebook? And I get a bunch of hands. And I say, okay, how many of you have more than 1,000 friends on, on, on Facebook or social media? There's still a pretty good amount. Uh, and I say, how many of you have 2,000 2, friends? And the number drops off. 
Okay, so those of you that have your hands up because you have at least a thousand friends, how many of you can name every single person within one square block of where you live? And of course, all those hands go down. And so what that tells me is that the creation of community is so much more artificial in uh, in these media spaces, especially in social media. And what that does is it gives you an artificial sense of belonging. So I'm not connected to things. I'm not having to put forth effort to be part of a community. I mean, like we talk about the social contract. Um, you know, we talk about how people engage in civil society. It it takes a lot, right? Like I mean, you get the benefit of government and you get the benefit of rules and the benefit of structure, but it also takes a lot of participation on your part. Social media, especially when it comes to issues of controversy or issues that are that are difficult doesn't ask of you a lot it just asks that you can click through something and and that transitoriness I think really affects uh, people's sense of belonging it undermines their uh, sense of, of belief in, in a communal structure I think it makes us more likely to jump if somebody says something or or posts something that really makes us angry I think if if you know if you and I are having a face-to-face conversation Oscar and you say something that's really controversial I can engage you in it. I may disagree with you. you. You may disagree with me. We may walk away and we may not like each other again. But it's unlikely. What it's likely is when we have a one-to-one conversation about it, we can understand each other's perspectives. And, and maybe I walk away thinking, you know, Oscar's got a great point. The second you put that mediated space or that mediated barrier between us, there's no longer a requirement for that. So that, I think, makes things much more transitory. Um, and I think the other thing is that it makes us much more likely to only find information that feeds our perspective. And that's the real danger, I think, of both media and social media now, which is we can create the most narrow of channels and only get information that we want. And I use a very neutral example. I say, listen, um, if you really like to cook, I can sit down uh, on my television and go to my provider's guide and I can identify at least two, maybe three channels where all I'm gonna get is cooking information, okay? I don't have to look at anything else. I don't have to look at news. I don't have to look at sports. I don't have to watch movies. I get everything that I need. Fold into that, then I get on social media and I only go to social media pages that are related to food. So now all I'm getting is one stream of information. Okay, That's a fairly neutral subject. What happens if I change it to I believe in really right-wing politics? I'm going to go just to those media sources. I'm going to get just that flow of information. And because that's my predisposition, I mean, this is the thing. I I don't want to, and I think it's important to remember that we don't blame media by itself because there's still intent in everything that we do. We still have agency to make decisions about this. But that idea that I can create a media ecology that solely speaks to the things that I want to hear means that I'm very likely to ever question the things that I want to hear. It's going to take a huge momentous issue for me to say, hey, what's going on on these other channels? What's going on in these other perspectives? Maybe this is wrong. But but once I've created that channel, and that's why I say it's always easy to start with something like sports or cooking, right? And I say, I can create this world and people don't think anything of it. They're like, oh yeah, but I love cooking. I love sports. That's all I want. I want, you know, all these different versions of, of this network and all these different pages with those things. And that makes perfect sense and nobody thinks about it. But as soon as I say, like, what happens if that's right-wing media or, you know, racist media, then people are like, oh, Right, that does set a, a sort of a narrow, uh, a narrow tunnel that's only going to feed all of these fears or concerns or anger or or uh, sadness with the world that I live in. You are listening to United and Resilient. We'll be right back with our guest, Dr. Pineda. Now we will shift to our intermission segment of Where Were You on August Third with our guest, Leila Melendez. 
She is the CEO of Workforce Solutions Borderplex and shares her personal story of the August 3rd, 2019 tragedy. Hi, my name is Layla Melendez, and this is my August 3rd story. I grew up in the Ranchland Hills area, about two miles from the Cielo Vista Walmart. My mother still lives in the area by Lionel Forthby Park. I might have been a victim myself that morning. That morning, I was looking for a small swimming pool and I was making my way to the Walmart on Yarbrough to pick one up before heading to my mother's home to help her with a car repair. I called the Yarbrough Walmart asking if they had a swimming pool. The employee told me they had run out, but knew that the Cielo Vista Walmart had a large stock that week. I was hopeful as I called the Cielo Vista Walmart. My call took place at 9.51 a.m. while driving in the direction of that store. Their employee told me they had run out of pools just the day before. So I changed my course and instead went to another store, AutoZone, to pick up a battery for my mom's car. About 20 minutes later, I was in line at AutoZone when the text came flying in about the active shooter. My first thought was, I almost went there. I immediately went to my mother's house and communicated with everyone that I knew to account for them, my family, my friends, my coworkers. And as my family gathered to watch the news in the living room, I remained alone in the kitchen. I didn't want to interact with anyone. My morning was filled with sounds of helicopters because we were so near the store you know, the drip of tears the rest of the day. I've always wanted so much for El Paso to make the news for something big, but not this, never this. My heart was broken. Had the Cielo Vista Walmart had a pool in stock, I may have been there at that exact same time of the shooting. I saved a screenshot of the phone call that I made that morning as a reminder of my faith. I have no doubt that God and my grandfather up in heaven guided my steps that day away from the store. My heart ached for the victims and the families and the neighborhood and the community. I'm very thankful that I was not one of those victims myself. I was very proud of us that day, uh, dealing with it and the response from the blood donations to the funerals and everybody just support. And we immediately defended our community and our citizens. And when the me the national media came in and everybody was all of a sudden interested in El Paso, I was just very proud of my community. We just all felt this common pain, but we were immediately united. I have remained so proud because we have learned so much from it. We have not forgotten it. We have done everything that we could to keep doing our best for the victims, the families, the neighborhood, uh, the community about it. It's not something that we take, you know, obviously we take lightly, uh, we, we remember it. And I think that that's the most important thing. I think the message that I wanna say for, especially the victims and the families is that they are not alone in this. We all feel that pain, we all hurt for them. We will be there for them forever. This is something that has forever bound us. And even the people that don't live in El Paso anymore, El Pasoans from all around the world that have reached out, we are immediately, we are bonded by this. And it's something that we will support one another forever. 
and we're never going to forget this. This is something that was done to all of us. And I want them to know that we are all always going to be there for them. We now return to our united and resilient guest, Dr. Richard Pineda. I want to ask, how can people benefit from reducing the amount of time we spend on social media? Can you provide us tips on how we can modify our social media use to help improve our mental health? Well, I mean, I think I think the first thing uh, is is creating a schedule that limits how much time you, you spend on social media. It doesn't matter what you're looking at or how you're consuming it. I mean, uh, I think about this all the time because when I have my phone in my hand, it doesn't matter who's around me, the phone becomes my primary focus, right? And I pretend that I'm engaged in multitasking, that I'm like, no, no, I'm listening to you, but I just, I'm checking Facebook or I'm, I'm reading my emails. And, and it may be significant, right? I may say to myself for work, I have to check this or this message just came in, I've got to respond to it. But the second that you allow any kind of mediated barrier to appear between you and the people that you're sitting with, then then you're already off the, the rails, right? It doesn't matter if that's all you're doing or if you're looking at other things. It just immediately, you've essentially, you might as well just be in your own room, right? Because you put this barrier between it. So the first thing I think is finding and establishing rules for how you consume uh, media. And, and I think that there's some, some simple things in the same way that I tell people you don't want to, right before you go to bed, drink a giant soda or drink a giant cup of coffee. You don't want to be reading social media or going through, you know, web pages or internet or those sorts of things because what's likely to happen again, because you you go to a very particular stream of information, you're likely to get hooked into things. And and I'm listen, I'm the first person. I watch some of the most unusual things on my like Facebook reels. Like I, I'm really into planes, and so there's a ton of things about planes, and you know, I'll watch planes like taking off and landing, and and it'll be like an hour after I think I'm going to go to bed. And, and I'm still there, right? Because it's just interesting to me. So your mind is already working faster. So that's the first thing is a schedule. The second thing is I think being realistic about how you consume media. A, a lot of smartphones have actually gotten better about automating a message of how much time you've spent that week on the phone. And that's really scary sometimes to see that number, um, but it's really helpful because the, the, these companies, I think the technology people realize that they're, you, you know, you need to have these like some limits. Um, but I think the other thing is that you, you have to be, I think, willing to engage in a broader consumption of media. And I think that that sort of helps balance things out. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, with the, the prevalence of social media, it's okay to take longer breaks from that. So I'm saying, you know, come up with a better schedule, but I think there's nothing wrong with detaching yourself from that. You know, if you say, listen, on on, you know, Saturday, I'm I'm going to I'm not going to pick up my phone or I'm going to I'm going to spend that time, you know, I'm going to write a note instead of just sending a message or a text message. I think anything you can do to to put a little bit of space between you and I think that it's also important to remember these are all tools, right? These these are all tools. These aren't um, these aren't our lifeblood. I mean, we, we, we can survive without all of these things. And I think the second you begin to think about it that way and force yourself to, to walk away from that, then it gives you a little bit of a little bit of breathing space. But, you know, there's there's what I refer to as sort of sacred times, like when you're sitting and eating with somebody or um, if you're trying to have a conversation, like the second you pick up your phone, whether it's an emergency or you legitimately have to, to read what's going on, you've just created a barrier between you and that person. You literally might as well be in another room at that point. So I think there's times that you just have to force yourself to say, I'm going to step away from this. We're going to, you know, we're going to put our phones on the table over there. We're not going to look at them, all of those kinds of things. You're right. Give your guest, family member or friend that undivided attention they deserve when speaking to them. 
I want to bring up that parenting in this age where children and youth have access to news and such can be difficult, especially during a crisis like we mentioned before. They have access to round-the-clock information. Sometimes kids know what current event is happening before their parents. Are there ways to help parents in reducing unhealthy social media use? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is something uh, I have a five and a half year old daughter and I I find it remarkable. I mean, without prompting from us, uh, you know, would watch us use the iPad. I mean, we did use the iPad and still do uh, on occasion, you know, for her to watch a television program. And she's she's so attuned cognitively to in, in terms of how to use it. So before we knew it, she was punching in the code that would unlock the iPad. And at that point, she didn't even really have an understanding of numbers. She was just following patterns, right? So she would see one of us punching in the number, and the next thing you know, that the iPad would be on. And and the other thing that's really telling, uh, Oscar, is that I think that, that these tools that we have, they're being made, I think, with, with an eye to making them incredibly accessible. And that's good, right? We, we want technology to be accessible. So especially if you have limitations, you can find ways to, to make that technology still work. But what's remarkable is that that the way in which a lot of these devices are made is so in sync with the 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 intuitiveness of children that it doesn't take very long before they figure out how to do things. So the first thing she did was unlock it. So we were surprised by that. That was interesting. But the next thing is that she would start searching for videos on YouTube, and she knew how to get to. In this case, it was Peppa Pig because she would see something or she would at least know one letter and then it was off to the races. And, and so part of me is like, oh, that's awesome. My kid's, you know, genius, right? So you're, you're pleased by that. But then you sort of think like, wow, if we're not here, what is she looking at or how does she stumble on things? And and there were, on one or two occasions, uh, not entirely inappropriate, but just age inappropriate things that she had stumbled onto. Um, and that actually, we saw that shift in behavior. And so less that I think that the media was directly influencing her, but more that she would would hear something in the tone that they would say it and then she would she would replicate that tone. And so a couple of them were really surprised like where did you learn that or why are you saying it that way or why are you doing that? And at some point uh, I think we heard it on a program and I was like, "Oh, okay, we, we you don't you can't watch that anymore. We're going to put a limit on that." So I think the first thing is that parents have to be incredibly uh, invasive as much as they may not like to in the patterns of, of what their their uh, kids are looking at and how they're using uh, social media. I think there's a lot of peer pressure for kids younger and younger to have smartphones. I mean, the truth of the matter is now there's very rarely a non-smartphone, right? So even like your base level entry phone has the ability to do internet and videos and the whole nine yards. So I think parents have to be much more invasive than they probably want to be to, to track what's going on. There has to be better, more honest conversations about what what kids are seeing so that it's age appropriate. Um, and the other thing is that I think that, that there does have to be uh, implementation of restrictions. And there have been various ways in which this has been done. I mean, there's been some attempts by the government to intervene. There's been, um, you know, there's things that you can download onto your devices to kind of lock out or track what they're doing. I think all those things are really important because I think at a certain point, if you just say no, what you're essentially doing is creating forbidden fruit, right? The second that you say, no, you cannot look at this and you don't have a frank conversation about that or an appropriate, age-appropriate conversation, you're essentially 
planting in their seeds. There's something there they don't want me to see, so I want to see it, right? And, and that forbidden fruit, I think, is a huge problem with a lot of the kind of social media, digital media, the spaces that we're saying, no, 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 you don't get to see that, but we're not saying here's why. You know, it's, it's not to say they shouldn't see certain things. I mean, I think that there's always going to be um, you know, images on the news that, that might be shocking but are significant for them. I think there's going to be stories. I mean, you, you cannot hide those things, I think, forever from children, but you've got to be cognizant of how they interpret those those images. I mean, there's some countries, there's a Scandinavian country that actually has done, they've developed newscasts for children where they're still telling stories, they're still telling like the issues of the day, but they're adapting them so so that the concepts are a little bit, uh, a little bit um, cleaner, and that if there is controversy or there are uh, images, they do a good job of, of uh, adjusting some of those things. That's a great way to provide information to them at that young age. Parents always need to be engaged and know what their kids are doing. Dr. Pineda, we have come to the end of our interview and before we conclude, we like to ask our guests for a message of hope. Dr. Pineda, can you provide us your message of hope? I think about this a lot. I think about what happened uh, at, at the Walmart. Uh, I think about the community just kind of facing that and then COVID coming in. And I just, I cannot without just tremendous emotion think about what an amazing community we live in. Um, I remember the day uh, of the shooting, watching television, and they had a, a, a crew at the blood bank. And it's a hot day. I mean, if you remember the, the, the day of the shooting, it was a really, really hot day. And there are hundreds of people lined up around the blood bank. And I thought to myself, that's El Paso, right? That's El Paso. And so for me, hope is embodied in everything that we do in this community. I think that we exist in a space of hope uh, in how we treat each other. I think we're different than so many border communities. I think we're different than, than almost any other major metropolitan community in the United States. I think that we embody resilience uh, I think that it is the nature of what has happened here in terms of culture, in terms of how we move forward. And so for me, what I, what I tell people all the time is that, that, you know, when I come home from a trip or when I think about where I live, I'm just reminded of the fact that this is a community that has faced, you know, hardship and stress in a way that a lot of other places don't. And at every turn, we find our way. And in, in my mind, that is that is the ultimate hope. That is the thing that always brings me a, a great amount of comfort, and it makes me proud of this community. It makes me proud of the people that live here because it didn't matter what your take was on the world that day. It didn't matter what your political perspective was on that day. There were hundreds of people lined up around a blood bank to try to do the best that they could. And that, that to me, is the ultimate hope. That is El Paso. Dr. Pineda. Thank you for your thoughts and for sharing your emotions and a part of yourself. We appreciate your views and what you have to say to our community. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you're very welcome, Oscar. It was great uh, talking with you all. Dr. Pineda is an associate professor at the University of Texas at El Paso and director of the Sam Donaldson Center for Communication Studies. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into all the tips and suggestions as we are constantly consuming media and social media into our lives. 
share this information to others and your loved ones for a positive impact and well-being. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Opaso United FRC, where you can learn more about our commitment to the community's long-term recovery. I'm signing off, and I will see you soon.